Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program uh, Alan Cohen, who is the president and CEO of CPAL, which is Child uh, Poverty Action Lab. Uh, it is an organization in Dallas that was started in the fall of 2018, and uh, Alan has been leading that effort ever since. And as uh, we are going to be looking all during the, the fall of this year at the question of poverty, especially urban poverty and especially Dallas, uh, we uh, want to talk especially to Alan, uh, who has been doing this work for a couple of years. And Alan, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you on, on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, Alan, uh, to begin with, I want to say uh, we, we all come to the work we do uh, in usually interesting ways, uh, ways that we didn't anticipate. Uh, what brought you to this work focusing on child poverty? Yeah, so um, I had gotten involved in, in public education about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and I think that um, uh, it became clear to me that you could ask the question, do we have so much poverty uh, in Dallas because of failings in the public education system? or does it appear that we have such failings in the public education system because we have such high rates of poverty? I think the answer is yes. Um, and uh, the more I spent time uh, thinking about how best to, to support kids, the more I realized that uh, it wasn't just education, but issues related to health, issues related to safety, issues um, uh, related to uh, uh, parents' jobs. All these things were symbiotically entwined. and so. Um, it was really important to think about what were some approaches that would allow us to attack this problem from multiple angles at the same time in order to really um, hopefully create what, what, what I hope will, will one day exist, which is a Dallas, which is the best place to raise a child in the country, regardless of zip code. Okay, so, so many ways I want to go with this, but let's begin with the uh, last statement you made, and that is that essentially we should not allow demography to be destiny, right? Mm -hmm. That is to say, you, you shouldn't uh, be able to predict people's futures based upon what zip code they've been born into. And yet that is really true in Dallas to an ungodly uh, extent right now. Give us a sense of how, as I know you like to say, Dallas is more of a TV dinner than it is a melting pot. Explain what that means and explain this diversity, this, this gap that exists of, of wealth. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's become um, certainly more, uh, there's been more awareness uh, in the social sector, and I think more awareness in Dallas broadly, that Dallas is among the most segregated cities in the country, and that's by both race and socioeconomics. And if you look at the lenses of, of race, if you look at the lens of gender, if you look at the lens of geography and location, um, you're going to see really, really deep correlations to opportunity um, uh, for, for children and families and individuals. And what I'm uh, most um, uh, uh, focused on in the work at CPAL, along with my colleagues here, is the research on economic mobility or the American dream. What are the chances that a child that's born today in poverty can do better than their parents have done by the time that they're an adult and then the next generation can do better than them and better than them, which is a lot of the promise 
um, that um, uh, uh, I grew up believing in in, in this country, right? Um, and the reality is that um, your chances of uh, economic mobility vary widely based off of the specific location, the specific neighborhood um, that you grow up in and uh, the characteristics of um, uh, your circumstances. And so one of the reasons I, I uh, earlier in my career was so focused on early childhood education is because it created so much hope for me that um, when you when you look at a three-year-old or a four-year-old, if you spend any time around young children, you realize that three-year-olds and four-year-olds are incapable of not learning. They're absolutely incapable of not learning. They are going to learn. So that's actually really empowering for uh, society at large because it really comes down to what is the stimulus that we surround children with and, and are we going to teach them that there's hope in the world and that there's opportunity um, or are we going to surround them with an absence of hope and opportunity, in, in which case that is what they're going to learn. Okay. but. Uh, while all of that is true, it's clearly not working well yet in Dallas. As last time I checked, we had the, uh, we were number three from the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of cities in America uh, with a poverty rate uh, that is as high as it is. Uh, can you give us a little more clarity about where the data is on that and where Dallas sits right now in the national picture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's one thing that I hope that, that anyone listening to this um, conversation remembers, it's that about one in every three kids in the city of Dallas grows up in poverty. One out of every three. And, and I, I hope that we don't get numb to that number. And, and we expect that that number really is only going to go up uh, as a result of COVID um, right now. But um, whether it's one in three or one in four, or one in, it goes between one and three at the city level to one and five at the county level. Um, but regardless, that's just, that's not good. Um, uh, and I, I, what I believe is, is two things. One, um, which is if more people knew that, we would have much, much greater action. I see when there's a natural disaster on TV that folks with affluence and influence will drive into the storm. They open up their pocketbooks. They can't allow what they see on TV, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the human suffering to continue without taking action. And yet in our own backyard, um, poverty is the invisible natural disaster. And so I feel like we have to make sure that everyone knows that this is happening in Dallas, Texas. Um, the second thing is this, and this is where I think we ought to get some hope as well, which is you're right, Dallas is uh, about third uh, among major cities in the country in terms of the highest rate of child poverty. And, and that's not a list you wanna be high up on. Uh, but I'll also say this, a lot of other major cities in the country um, uh, aren't as high on that list and because their way of dealing with poverty is to price out all the poor people. Uh. So one of the opportunities we have in Dallas is to make diversity, to make inclusion a competitive advantage. Um, and we're at a crossroads right now, and our decision is, are we gonna deal with child poverty and poverty in general in this city by lifting families up, or are we gonna deal with it by pushing families out? And, and certainly in my organization, we're working on strategies to lift families up and believe that that is the best path forward for this city. Well, and let's go back to the origins of CPAL and say that uh, it really grew out of Mayor Rawlings' Grow South initiative, right? And so, 
one of the ways initially that the mayor and the city of Dallas were looking at how to do this was precisely what you just said. Uh, and the tendency is when we want to grow in areas like these to develop uh, gentrification uh, plans where we go in and actually do push people out. And, 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 and yet we also know that we have a massive shortage of affordable housing and we have a massive problem of uh, existing housing, low-income housing that needs uh, to be improved in order for neighborhoods to be improved and all those sorts of things. But what I, what I find hopeful about your organization is uh, that it is a coalition, not just uh, a discrete organization on an island, but you, and full disclosure, Faith Commons, who the parent of, of this organization, is a, is a partner as well. Uh, but, uh, but you brought together all sorts of government uh, agencies, school district, uh, all of that, and, and, and this is a coalition of how to find solutions together. Uh, so uh, I imagine that that's both hopeful and frustrating at the same time, though, getting everybody on the same page, right? Well, I think you've got to stay hopeful. And, and I think one of the things I really feel blessed about is that I, I get to wake up every day and think about solutions and work on solutions and, and what, are, what are things that we can be problem solvers around. Um, one of the reasons we um, decided to form CPAL is because um, uh, it is really uh, an easy trap to fall into when, when talking about poverty in the city and talking about such entrenched issues. Um, to use data to admire the problem. Um, and there's definitely lots of opportunity uh, to look at things that are working around the country that have potential and start to use data to, to drive towards solutions. But one thing that the data definitely tells us is when you start thinking about one in three kids in this city um, growing up in poverty, the scale of the problem requires that we bring scale to bear and on the solution side as well. And so we're not going to program our way out of um, systems issues. It's going to require really deep systems change. And that's why we have brought together, and really this is a credit to, to Mayor Rawlings. Mayor Rawlings, during his last year, brought together all of the CEOs of all of our major public agencies locally to start meeting together in the same room um, and thinking about how do we take on root causes of poverty together. That really had not happened in Dallas's fragmented form of government before. And so in that room, when you bring together the city manager with the superintendent of schools, with the chancellor of the community college district, with the head of DART, with the head of our, our hospital system, our workforce solutions, et cetera, et cetera, we now have nine and a half billion dollars of systems leverage each year thinking together about how best to organize our tax dollars to really take on um, uh, uh, an issue that is deeply entrenched. That's what it's going to take. And, and one thing that I, 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 a data point that I like to point out to people is that in this country, uh, we have $1.1 trillion in public funds that go to the social safety net every year. Also across the entire country, in philanthropy, we spend $50 billion on the social safety net every year. What does that mean? It means if we could just make government 10% more effective, we would double the investment of philanthropy for the entire country. And I have yet to meet anybody in Dallas or really anywhere else around the country that doesn't believe that government has at least 10% room to be more effective. <laughs> All right, so uh, one of the things I've learned from reading and studying what you do is that you know the problems of poverty 
and the solutions both are not linear, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not, it, it's not from A to B to C, you know, you, you just, if you, if you just do this and, and, and really that's to some degree, that's a problem left and right, isn't it? Because uh, the, you know, the, those on the left would say almost exclusively poverty is simply a result of pop policy, right? It's, it's, it's all about government um, action uh, and, and systems that have uh, inhibited people's uh, flourishing. And those who are on the right would say it's almost entirely about personal responsibility, about intact families and parenting and uh, choices that people make. And we live in a, a, a free and opportunistic environment. If everybody just worked hard, they would be where I am, so to speak. So we, we have these two almost uh, intransigent philosophies, right? That, that, that say uh, that they are, um, that the solution is just there. But in, in your way of looking at this, it, it seems to be yes and yes, and even more. So talk about how you put all of that together. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, one of the things that we talked about internally as a team a lot, um, uh, and then we talked with our partners a lot about, is not to fall into the trap of a false choice. Um, yeah. Right, that nuance is really, really, it, it, the world is complex. Um, and each of us individually are complex and our needs are complex. And so um, uh, we shouldn't try to uh, oversimplify it and turn it into this. Uh, should we have better systems or should we um, uh, you know, promote empowerment of, of personal responsibility? The answer can be yes. Um, so um, one thing that we believe fundamentally as kind of a, a, a general theory of change for the organization, not to get into too much sort of consulting speak, but um, it's simply this, this basic concept that if everyone in Dallas, every individual were armed with good and complete information, um, if every individual in Dallas were armed with a, a sense of agency that they can make their own decisions for themselves, and if our systems in Dallas didn't create unnecessary barriers that got in the way of that sense of agency, we just think that very few people would choose poverty. Mm -hmm. And so that, what that allows us to, to focus in on are what are the many things that we can do inside of our systems that uh, will reduce barriers um, uh, to folks having the resources that, uh, and the options um, uh, for how to live their life in a way that will um, uh, allow them to provide for their kids in a way that won't drive poverty. I'll, I'll give you an example. Please um, do. We, at the very beginning of this effort, uh, started looking at what is, what's dollars that are available from the federal government or from the state government that um, are going underutilized in, in Dallas. Not something where we need a big policy change, not something where you know, we need um, the state to say, we're gonna give you billions more dollars, just stuff that's already available that we're not using. And one of the, the, the funds that we looked at was the Women, Infants and Children Nutrition Program or, or the WIC program which provides really high level of nutritional sustenance uh, for pregnant women and uh, uh, families with children aged zero to five uh, to make sure that kids have uh, uh, the, the proper nutrition profile in their most developmentally important years. This is a program that has decades of longitudinal research behind it. 
that is a bipartisan program at the federal level that already has hundreds of millions of dollars uh, federally appropriated for it that tend to be underutilized every year. And in Dallas, despite all the benefits, despite this really being free money to go to the grocery store and, and get things like baby formula or um, you know, uh, 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 other really important foods, only 40% of eligible participants in the county take advantage of this program, which means that actually in Washington, D.C., we're leaving $50 million a year that we've already paid taxes on that could be coming into our community to, uh, to the most marginalized neighborhoods and families to provide nutritional sustenance for kids, $50 million a year. And so if Melinda Gates right, were hanging out in Seattle and said, I'm ready to fly back to my hometown of Dallas, and just one time I'm going to make an announcement that once, only once, I'll write a check for $50 million if we can get all of the nonprofits in town to help connect families with nutrition, it would be front page news on, in the newspaper. It would have all of philanthropy buzzing. It would have the religious community buzzing. It would have government buzzing. The check is written and it's written every year. Yeah. And so we've got to figure out how to connect families with these services. And what we're finding is that there are huge barriers that are getting in the way. It's, it's like going to the DMV if you want to get your WIC benefits. You, you sit in a WIC center, you wait for three hours. When you go to the grocery store, it's hard to figure out what items are eligible for well, WIC. Wait, wait, let's, let me just stop you there. Yeah. When you go to the grocery store. Yeah. What grocery store? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like you've got to figure out transportation in many cases to get to a grocery store. It, there are little bodegas that are that are WIC only stores that are set up in different parts of Dallas because the shopping experience or the barriers to getting to the shopping experience are so extreme uh, or create such extreme barriers that we have uh, we have to set up new new systems altogether. So this is this to me is like one of these really obvious things um, uh, that we get excited about because there's an opportunity to improve a system. Texas's WIC card is, a, is a, a digital debit card, right? So it's one of those things that ought to be able to be refilled whether or not you go to the WIC center or not. You ought to be able to do it from home. There's only two places in the country where you cannot fill your WIC card from home. You actually have to go into a center to get it filled. Texas and Guam. <laughs> Guam. Yeah. Guam. So this is, this is good though, right? Because, you know, if we got a problem and we don't know the first place to start on how to fix it or improve it, then we've got a big problem. But this is, this is we've got some low hanging fruit here. So we're now working with the state of Texas, um, with the local agency to think about what, what, do we, what steps do we need to take to put the technology in place and put the systems in place that would allow in Dallas County for those families that are eligible for WIC to be able to refill their card um, at home without ever having to get into a car, without having to figure out transportation. That doesn't mean that we've got everything solved. As you point out, we need more grocery stores. We need uh, more, you know, transportation. We're going to need childcare sometimes to allow for parents um, to go shopping. All of these sorts of issues are things that we're going to have to figure out, but we can get an inch closer and an inch closer than that. And I guess my hope is that if we focus on solutions, if we focus on the things we can agree on, we can have a different conversation five years from now than we're having today. And it would be a shame if we, if we just let this be an admiring the problem conversation. Right, okay, so the goal of CPAL is to reduce child poverty 
in Dallas over the next 20 years by 50%. Yep. So uh, what are some of the key things you, you've begun mentioning? Uh, we can make WIC more easily available. We can begin to knock down some of the barriers to uh, some of those basic resources that already exist. Yep. Uh, let's talk about education. So education is another area you at one time were yourself uh, in the education field specifically. Uh, data suggests that early childhood education, pre-K, is hugely important to the success of kids uh, from uh, poor families. Uh, is that on your radar as well? Is that something you're, you're working toward? Absolutely. So, so first of all, I'd say, and I'm, I'm a little biased on this, but I feel like the work that DISD is doing, uh, the work of, uh, of our partners at um, uh, Commit and, and many other organizations, Early Matters, um, has our pre-K um, and early elementary infrastructure in Dallas moving in the right direction. Uh, we're seeing um, uh, more kids attending pre-K than they ever have. That is at huge risk with COVID, by the way, though. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, let's isolate the COVID conversation for right now. We have had a trend of more kids attending pre-K. We've had a trend of the quality of pre-K in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade uh, increasing. And our third grade reading scores have been increasing at a rate that exceeds the rest of the state of Texas and really exceeds the country. Um, uh, so lots of exciting um, uh, news. That said, still, um, uh, you know, six out of every 10 uh, uh, kids in Dallas don't read at grade level at the end of third grade. So let's not, let's not take a victory lap. Let's, let's use this as a data point to say we're on the right path and let's double down on those strategies. Now what CPAL is focusing in on is birth to three care. And how do we really start thinking about um, what types of interventions we can reach kids with and how we can support parents in providing care uh, from infancy through the, the toddler years, knowing that the first time really, one of the reasons we focus on pre-K so much this is the first time where we have a, a, a large concentration of kids all in the same place. That creates a opportunity for a system solution. In earlier years before pre-K, you start thinking about it and, and the kids are spread out family to family or in small childcare centers that often don't have more than, than 20 kids for the whole center. So it's a very fragmented world. And so the solutions have to be look very different. Um, and that's a challenge that we're, we're working on right now. All right, so we've, we've talked a bit about government and about accessing that. Uh, we talked about education. Uh, housing and transportation are two other major areas, right, uh, that, that we're looking at. So uh, can you touch on those as part of the solution too? Yeah, I mean, so from an affordable housing uh, situation, um, we look at that from a variety of angles. One is uh, just do we have enough housing? And we don't. Um, and it's, uh, we're going to have to increase the supply side of housing dramatically. We look at where is the affordable housing located. So we know um, through really, really rigorous research that um, uh, the, the neighborhood characteristics that a child grows up in have dramatic implications for um, adult success for that, that child. And so a child that at three years old moves to a high opportunity neighborhood 
versus a, a child that moves at 12 years old, that can change lifetime earnings by hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so making sure that we're building affordable housing in areas that already have high opportunity characteristics, as well as bringing high opportunity characteristics to neighborhoods that have historically been disinvested in um, are, are big pieces of the puzzle and stability. And so what I really wanna focus in here is like how two of these areas might intersect with one another because I wanna get into the complexity, right? A lot of times in, in these efforts and in philanthropy or government, we set up these problems like a salad bar, right? Like, okay, we'll talk about housing over here and then we'll talk about education over there. And it's not like a, a child needs either housing or education, they need both and those two things interplay. So one of the things that we can see very, very clearly in the data is that the power of early childhood education is undermined when kids are moving from one school to another, to another, to another each year because they have unstable housing situations. So there are 23 schools, 23 schools in DISD where about a third of the kids have to change school mid-year. They're leaving their home school and going to another school because of housing instability. And our data team has done stuff that's a lot smarter than what I can do. They use big words like regressions and you know a lot of statistical kinds. Of, but they've been able to show that for about 60% of those kids switching schools mid-year, the catalyzing event is eviction. So if we can start to wrap our heads around strategies that might even just delay eviction from mid-year to summer, we could have a dramatic impact on uh, kids' academic achievement over time. Um, and, and if we could figure out ways not just to delay it till summer, but actually to eliminate eviction and make it a win-win for both the landlord and the tenant, and then also for Dallas at large, because we're now lifting up our kids, that's the type of thing that we want to pursue. Well, I mean, I've often thought, why is it that uh, uh, landlords incentivize people on the front end and not on the back end with, uh, with the opportunity to have a free month's rent, say. Move here and you, you get a free month's rent. Well, it just, it just incentivizes people to change their residence. So they're, they're actually moving in order to save money, but they're disadvantaging their kids at the same time because they're changing schools. You know, what if there were uh, an incentivizing program where it, if you, you know, re-up for another year, you, you get, uh, you know, a month's free rent or half of a month's free rent or some such thing. But it, it's like nobody seems to be figuring out how to work with people to that end. Yeah, I, I think you're, and, and that to me is exactly the, um, that's what we want to do. Like, let's think of a solution and then let's not just think about it. Let's try it. Let's, what, we, what we're talking about is uh, uh, at CPAL a lot is uh, the, the word prototype. How do we just prototype something really simple? Like there's got to be a landlord that'll work with us on that, right. you know, and let's just try it and see what happens. Right. Um, but at the same time, that means that we've got to start from a place that doesn't immediately villainize the landlord in the situation, sure. even though you know our our primary focus is how do we help that family, how do we help that child. We don't want to blame families. We also want to to find what is a win-win opportunity. Um, and there's so much. Uh, I'll just tell you, 
Right now, if there was an underlying root cause of a lot of uh, our, our issues, it's an inability to collaborate, right? And collaboration has to be practiced. That means empathy has to be practiced. It has to be practiced in all directions. And the biggest collaboration killer is forcing two people to take the same action for exactly the same reasons. It's okay if we can get the landlord to figure out that it's in their best interest from a profit standpoint to right. take the action of incentivizing. Right. Um, that's okay if they'll take the action. I'm not going to villainize them for that. Right, right. Yeah. I'll give you, a, a, you know, to me, like these examples of practicing empathy uh, and practicing collaboration are so important. If there, we get asked a lot, okay, you're the action lab, so I'm an individual. I want to take an action. What can I do? Um, and my answer is always go find somebody that you really disagree with on an issue. Like, like if you are, if, if you hate charter schools and you find somebody that loves charter schools, sit down with them and don't spend the whole conversation trying to convince them that you're right and they're wrong. Like literally go through that process of just asking them, why do you like charter schools so much? And, and, Every time they give you an answer, ask again, like, well, tell me more about that. Explain further. I bet if you break down the, their life story far enough, you're going to find something that you agree with. There's right. some piece that you're going to agree with. And we got to learn to lean into that. Yeah. I, I've done a lot of work uh, in the last year on um, violence reduction um, and focused a lot on violence because exposure to violence for kids um, uh, is, uh, is documented as an adverse childhood experience or a trauma um, that uh, has a, a really strong research base in terms of um, uh, its lasting impact into adulthood. So kids that, that are exposed to lots of violence, um, uh, literally it can change the architecture of their brain in some really interesting, uh, interesting and devastating ways. Um, uh, I uh, uh, ended up doing some some work on thinking about what are what are non-police or non-law enforcement interventions for reducing um, gun violence, and a big topic of conversation that a lot of folks uh, around Dallas that that I had a chance to work with wanted to talk about was just generally uh, guns as a topic period and gun control as a topic period. It's something I'm I'm pretty passionate about. I personally hate guns. One of the, the stakeholders that um, I worked closely with um, uh, throughout this process loves guns. I mean, like, you know, they couldn't understand why I had such a distaste for them. I don't understand why we need a device that's only purpose is to kill. They would tell me it's not only to kill, it's also for target practice. I would ask, what are you practicing for? Either way, we'll put that to the side. Um, while we couldn't agree on much in terms of whether or not we think guns are a good thing or a bad thing in the world, one thing we could absolutely agree on is we both dislike murder, right? And, and that's enough to start to work on solutions together, right? right. Yeah. Like, so let's think about what is it that we can agree on and then let's start working on solutions together and spending, instead of spending so much time getting on social media and villainizing and trying to organize the world into good people and bad people. Okay, well, this would be so hopeful politically for us as well right now, because we seem to have uh, grown farther and farther apart in our parties. Uh, yeah. But Alan, in the, in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to go back to your talking about empathy and your, your uh, concept of, of compassion in, in this process. 
now you're moving from the hard science to the soft science. You're moving from uh, the data to uh, the human element, and I think it's getting into the God part of good God. So I'd love to hear, uh, when, when you think about what gets you up in the morning, uh, and you think about your own uh, faith journey, is there anything that you would point to that, that says, you know, uh, it, it's this vertical aspect that, that really animates this horizontal aspect of, of my work? Uh, what about your own uh, story? Uh, might connect with other people as to why uh, their their faith should lead them to act in these ways? You know, I, I guess I, I'd say that, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was I was raised Jewish um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, my, my Jewish faith is in, important to me. And at the same time, you know, I've been the kind of Jew that would say, like, I'm Jewish, but but only on my parents' side. Um, you know, so uh, uh, you know, I, I I only tend to go to temple on high holy days. Uh, but culturally, it was deeply, deeply important, and has been deeply important to my family. And um, uh, really understanding uh, the history of um, uh, my people and the mantras of "We shall overcome" has been really uh, uh, important. I guess at a I don't know if it's really because of faith or because of um, uh, uh, that faith to me was a conduit to just general morality decisions and frameworks for what what is moral. But I, I tend to believe one of the reasons I and so many others uh, are ever drawn to uh, religion or even drawn to uh, politics or drawn to any number of things in our life is that I think humans are hardwired um, to care about fairness. I just, I do. I think we're hardwired to care about fairness. And I, I think that I, I know because of my work in early childhood education that the, the brain is really a, a, a social brain um, and that w our interactions with one another is deeply important to development and deeply important to how we feel in terms of our own happiness as human beings. And so I, I, I tend to come at this work um, and I tend to try as hard as I can um, to uh, more and more craft my entire life around the principle of general compassion. Um, and, and I believe that if we can lean into the idea that we should be compassionate towards one another, that we should think about how our actions are affecting each other, um, and that if we actually take the time to look at the faces of our neighbors and think about how the look on our neighbor's face makes us feel, um, uh, that we're going to realize that it is in each of our own self-interest to make sure that our neighbors are happy too, because it's going to make us happier. Wonderful. Well, I think that you have distilled the essence of all religious uh, traditions when you talk about compassion. And so uh, to uh, live it and to operate out of it is a spiritual uh, impetus. So thank you, Alan Cohen, for all you do uh, through CPAL and in our community. And we look forward to working with you and praying for you in your work uh, in the days and years ahead. Well, th thank you, George. I will say I've been a longtime admirer of yours and, and thank you for all the work that you do. And uh, I'm excited to be a, a friend and a collaborator going forward. Terrific.
All right. Well, thanks for being on Good God, and we'll talk to you again. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for continuing to tune into Good God. We've enjoyed uh, having these episodes produced, over a hundred of them now, uh, usually in a studio, but now we're doing so through computer technology in this time of social isolation. We're all trying to be careful with one another, but we also want to be careful to cultivate our spirit during this time, not to be discouraged, not to be despairing, but to be encouraged and to uh, encourage one another. So thank you for tuning in. We hope you appreciate these as much as we enjoy being able to offer them to you as a gift. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.